risk and luck are two sides of the same coin. A lot of people say he got lucky, this girl got lucky. Everyone gets lucky, man. The reality is luck and risk are two sides of the same coin. The ones that get lucky are the ones that never stop flipping. They keep flipping risk and one day it, the coin flips luck. Hello everybody and welcome to Off to the Valley, a podcast that shares tales of audacious individuals and entrepreneurs having the courage to do something different. Inspired by Silicon Valley culture, it really extends to a global community of individuals who dare to step outside their comfort zones. I'm your host, Pratik Panda, a three-time entrepreneur, die-hard marketing enthusiast, and a forever seeker of knowledge. Our superstar guest today is Lloyd Lobo. This man, let me tell you, has been through it all. From experiencing the Gulf War as a young refugee, to founding two rockstar startups, Boast and Traction, He's a champion of community-led growth. He's bootstrapped his startup to $10 million in annual recurring revenue and more. And did I just mention that he launched a killer book that hit the shelves recently? The book is titled From Grassroots to Greatness. It's a game changer on building iconic brands and is already being featured among the top new releases and bestsellers on Amazon. Lloyd, what a journey. Thank you so much, Pratik. That's a wonderful intro. And I don't know, man, when you're going through it, it doesn't feel like a tough journey. I think somebody else is always going through something more difficult than you are, and you know nothing about it. So be kind, count your blessings. The glass is always half full. And I always used to think this way, but having a wonderful partner, my wife helped me realize this after all the ups and downs that the glass is always half full. And so now actually I start my day every day that I wake up, I thank something good that happened the previous day. Thinking negative attracts the negative. When you think positive, you attract more positive. There is something to be said about manifestation. Understanding and knowing the fact that there is always somebody going through something worse makes us more human towards everybody. Tell us a little bit about your backstory. How did you get into entrepreneurship? I'm an accidental entrepreneur in many ways. I was born in Kuwait. My parents are from India. They were poor. My dad was a farmer. My mom grew up in the slums of Mumbai. By the time, if you're not educated, you can't go to the West. And if you want to make money in any fashion, you had to go to the Middle East. That was the only door that was open. So they went to Kuwait. And because they couldn't afford to take us on vacation anywhere, my dad would get free tickets back and forth home once a year for the family. So my summers as a child were spent in the slums of Mumbai. And I think that's where I understood the power of people and the camaraderie and what a small group of people can achieve no matter how hard the obstacle is. So as a kid, when we'd go back to Kuwait, I'd hold my parents' feet and tell them, please don't take me. I don't want to go back. Fast forward a few years, I got to experience probably one of the biggest marvels I've seen in my life is truly how a few people, when they're united by a great purpose, they can move mountains. The Gulf War hit Kuwait and the security had lapsed. There was a time where there was no phone, no internet. And when I went down the building that day with my dad, everyone, instead of belaboring on the problem, they started thinking about solutions. Hey, I'll guard the building from this time to that time. All organize food supply. Somebody else's, if you have displaced family members, will organize shelter. And every building became the sub-community and word of mouth spread from building to building, communicated with embassies, with governments, and organized a massive evacuation movement. And I learned a few things other than the power of people in community that day. One is 
leadership in a way, right? Great leaders cascade purpose, not just goals. I was this nine-year-old kid and Rambo was huge back then. And I threw on a red bandana and I was running around acting like I am Rambo and I'm rescuing Kuwait from the Gulf War. No adult made me feel like I was a little insignificant bother. They let me do what I did, like help in very little way. And a quote comes to mind or a story comes to mind from President Kennedy. I think it's an urban legend, but he was walking the halls of NASA at midnight and he sees this janitor sweeping the room and he asked the janitor, what are you doing here at this hour? And the janitor says, sir, I'm putting a man on the moon. That's what great purpose does. That's what great leaders do. They cascade that purpose where the lowest common denominator feels like they're the driver. And that's what I felt that purpose in my core. Now, fast forward a few more years, my family immigrated to Canada. I didn't finish high school, man. I ditched all my high school exams. I didn't graduate with a high school diploma. I think I was always craving this risk, uncertainty, always on the edge. And most kids, if you think about it, if you don't have a high school diploma, you don't have your high school transcripts, you didn't finish high school, they won't apply to university, right? I applied to every single university out there in Canada. I'm like, what do I have to lose? Because I knew that if my parents find out I failed, or like I didn't finish my high school uh, diploma and they paid so much fees, they would lose it. So I said, okay, I'm going to play the game. I'm going to apply to every university. I applied with the previous year's transcripts. Now, luck would have it that one university reached out and said, hey, can you fill out uh, these entrance exams, do these entrance exams, math and English. So I aced the math and English exam and they asked me, where are your transcripts? And I said, I made up a story and I said, there's political unrest in Kuwait. And so they're not here yet. And, and this was years after the Gulf War. There was no political unrest, but there were talks of it. So I concocted this story. And they're like, listen, start the semester. And if we don't get your transcripts within the month, you're going to have to unenroll. Luck would have it that they never followed up. And I graduated with an engineering degree. <laughs> That's amazing. And so key lesson here, as I go through my story, I want some lesson or the other for people to take away from it, is risk and luck are two sides of the same coin. A lot of people say he got lucky, this girl got lucky. Everyone gets lucky, man. The reality is luck and risk are two sides of the same coin. The ones that get lucky are the ones that never stop flipping. They keep flipping risk and one day it, the coin flips luck, right? And so that is, I think, an important thing to keep in mind. The other thing as an entrepreneur, unless you're doing something illegal, never ask for permission, beg for forgiveness. That's, that's the rule I learned here. And so powered by these learnings, a lot of what we become is nurture, not nature. We have this habit or tendency of saying that this kid is talented or look at how talented this person is. Talent is not what defines you. How you nurture that talent is what actually turns you into success because you, could, you can't rest on the laurels of your talent and compete. You need to keep practicing and honing and be consistent with that talent, right? And I think truly, if you surround yourself with the right people, let's say you want to be an entrepreneur someday, a successful tech startup or a movie star, whatever it is, whatever you're passionate about or what you dream of becoming. Step number one is surround yourself by successful people. Try to get in those circles, right? I never knew when I got into university that I would be an entrepreneur someday. But my nurture in my childhood enabled me and exposed me to learn a few things that were key to entrepreneurship. One was the power of people, companionship, surrounding yourself by good, positive people. And when I went in the business world, I found out that this quote 
your network is your net worth, right? A lot of what we are is our network. And I changed the quote, I think for my book, I, I, didn't, I don't think I, I put this in the book, but the way I like to say it is your community is your currency, not your network is your net worth. But it's the same thing, right? So who you know matters and how do you engineer luck in many ways is by building a network and building relationships. More and more successful people that I talk to have been building a network and they are what they are because of that network. I was chatting with, a, having dinner with a good friend yesterday who in weeks raised a $15 million first fund. And I'm like, how did you do it? Like you have Mark and Dreesen in your fund. And he's, this took 10 years of network building. Like I started building relationships with people and giving back and connecting with them, like going back 10 years, just not just asking people for things blindly, but giving back and helping and supporting them and building true connections and bonds and bringing them together. And then one day I decided to raise a fund and I reached out to these people. And of course, like lots of people write checks, right? And one connection led to the other and it led to Mark and recent investing. Or the same thing with the book. The, the, my book, From Grassroots to Greatness, is a bestseller on Amazon this week. I didn't just wake up one day and decide to launch the book. It's years of connections I've built that are giving the love and support. Your network matters significantly. Your community is your currency. I think that pushed me over the edge into entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think the key learning there, like you said, is this, the, the network uh, also takes time to build, right? And I think a lot of times people don't have enough patience because you don't see some immediate gratification. As humans, we are wired to look for immediate gratification. So do you have any tips or advice for people who are moving to new countries or starting to move their startups? And how can they go about building this network in a new place where you know absolutely nobody? I think the one thing is very underrated is just reach out. Follow somebody and reach out. Figure out your ideal customer profile, your ideal audience profile, and then just reach out to people. So I'll give you a very easy framework because this is, it sounds easy, but it's a lot of work. See, everything great is on the other side of risk and pain and hard work. Nothing worth doing is easy. But what happens is as you do difficult things, you become stronger, you become more resilient, and you learn more. And the process gets easier and you get into a flow state, right? So I'll, I'll give you an example. So when I finished engineering, I started figuring out like, hey, what do I want to do next? And I genuinely imagine a guy who didn't finish high school and then somehow finagled into engineering, right? I'm obviously like on the other side of risk there. I didn't want to do a typical nine to five job. So I started asking people, hey, what's the best job I could get if I want to be a business person someday? That was always my, my, my thing. I wanted to go on a business. And they said, man, your communication kind of sucks. So you should learn to communicate and, and improve your communication skill because everything you do from convincing your spouse that you want to do a company and you won't bring money to convincing early customers, to convincing the media, investors, even convincing employees, not only early employees to work for low pay, but later on as the company grows, you need to evangelize your employees to buy into the vision. It's all communication. Now, I knew one thing, and this is another key lesson here. Is self-motivation is hard, man. Self-motivation is hard for 95% of the people. I would say 99% of the people. What is self-motivation? Let's break that down because a lot of us write this term like a buzzword in job requirements. We're looking for a self-motivated individual. I guarantee you the person writing that job description is also not self-motivated. Self-motivated is not showing up to work and showing up for something when the conditions are perfect. Self-motivation is showing up when things are imperfect, 
when the weather is crappy and you don't feel like waking up because you slept two hours and you're punched in the face and hit in the gut over and over again. And how do you get up and show up? That is self-motivation. Now, what I was worried about is, man, I was an awkward communicator. If I went on stage and went to like speech classes and if people laughed at me or somebody made fun of me, I'd get demotivated and my self-motivation would die right there. So I'm like, how do I combat the self-motivation? And I realized that the best way to learn something is not to look for self-motivation, but to create a system. Really put yourself in an environment that forces you to do that something over and over again if you suck at that something. So I started applying to sales jobs because what better job than sales? What other job forces you to communicate over and over again other than sales? Now, again, luck would have it. I applied to all kinds of sales jobs, Xerox, small tech companies, big companies. Nobody would give me a job. I ended up getting a job at a startup making cold calls, telecom startup, really small. And I got to one, work alongside closely with the founder and the early founding team there. They wouldn't obviously give me a sales job because I'd never done sales before. But cold calling taught me a few things. One is like to keep waking up or keep getting up despite being punched down repeatedly. Failure, dealing with failure, dealing with rejection, dealing with embarrassment, polishing your messaging on the fly, pivoting your tone, negotiating, all of that you learn when you cold call. And I kid you not, man, the first cold call I made, I practiced for four hours. And when the decision maker on the other side came on and yelled, oh, no, 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 I freaked out and I hung up right away. <laughs> Everyone started laughing. So imagine now I did this in an audience where I went and spoke publicly and they started laughing. I'd probably never go on stage. But here I signed up to get paid. My parents are not rich. I need to make money. And with great pomp, I told them that, no, I'm going to be in business and the best skill I can learn is selling. And my parents, Indian immigrants, they're like, your friend's kid, our friend's kids are at Microsoft and everything. And you've done engineering to make this little money, minimum wage, pretty much doing cold calls. So I needed to uphold that I, the decision I made is the right one. And I kept going and going and fast forward today, everything I learned stems from that one skill, right? Communication is huge. And so incidentally, my girlfriend, then now wife, got into medical school in New Jersey. And so I started applying for jobs in New Jersey. If you work for a startup as your first job, chances are no big company is going to hire you in your second job back then. So I got a job doing sales at a startup, small company. The word startup wasn't used as much. It's a small new company, 10, 15 people in the enterprise uh, supply chain software. And I got a free trade visa because I was Canadian, got a TN visa, went to the US. And I landed there and I realized it's not a repeatable, scalable product, right? Like you got to talk to customers to figure out what their requirements are, then translate those requirements into dev requirements through wireframes. and then. Oh, also build a marketing website and build the marketing materials. I'm like, what is this? But now the thing is, again, system, not self-motivation. I couldn't quit. I'm on a visa. If I want to be with this girl, I can't quit. <laughs> and I made a huge pomp and said, I'm going to move to the US and I'm going to turn into an entrepreneur and all of this stuff. So I couldn't quit that job because one, I couldn't get, how do I find another job to give me the visa? So I had to stick with it, right? And so we, as a function of sticking with it, I got to work closely with the founder and the leadership team, got to talk to now from cold calling to meeting customers in person, large customers, Tiffany, Armani, Simon & Schuster. So I, I polished the messaging. 
talked to big enterprise customers, was able to close large enterprise deals or be a part of that. Then wireframe, talked to the dev team, learned everything about marketing and sales and collateral and all of this stuff. I started hosting events. And then my next job from there transitioned into running sales for another startup. And then when I'd hit a ceiling and my best friend from college called me saying, I want to do a startup together, I jumped at the opportunity because I'm like, rather than getting low pay and betting on some venture-backed startup that isn't doing well, we may as well go on our own journey. But if you look at the theme there, right, it is four things. If you boil down my journey, it's four things that are crucial elements to anyone's success. I kid you not. Number one is your companions matter the most. You are the average of the five people you surround yourself with. And if you want to supercharge that, your community matters the most. Number two, communication is everything. If you want to be a successful entrepreneur or any successful person, you need to learn to communicate because the job of a leader is to build, inspire, and motivate a team to deliver. Deliver is the output. And so clearly articulating your vision to excite and inspire people and energize them is something you need to do day in, day out. It's not a one and done activity. And people who are excited and inspired and energized can move mountains. So communication is a huge part of that. The next thing is creation, learning to create, whether it's content or products, it's huge, right? And as a function of these jobs, working on startups, I was learning to create. And the last one, man, without this fourth element, you will be nothing. This is the key, is consistency. It is consistency. Look at Gary Vaynerchuk to Mr. Beast to Warren Buffett to Jason Lumpkin. One thing is common. Consistency on small actions leads to big outcomes over time. Compound interest and consistency is what we call overnight success. And so you can be the best communicator and have the best community and be the best creator. But if you're not consistent, you'll lose it all. And so I want to translate this. So I, when I went to do Boast, which was my, my co-founder came up with the idea of automating R&D funding for businesses who are building new products or improving existing products, I, I had already been so prepared with four things. My DNA of community, ability to communicate, ability to create, and be consistent, meaning never stop, keep being relentless. So what happened was now, you know, you... In the back of your head, what do you call it? Like a computer, right? You don't know, but you subconsciously, your subconscious brain, then when faced with risk or uncertainty or challenge, you pull little skills that you have that have become muscle memory. And I think over my life, those things became muscle memory. So anyway, the first one was cold calling, obviously, and communication. So when we started Bose, we started calling manufacturing companies and oil and gas and construction companies to buy our stuff. Communication, pick up the phone, cold call. That was the first job I did. Nobody would talk to us, man. Imagine how scammy it sounds, right? Two guys, they've never heard of saying, give me your R&D and innovation data and I'll get you money from the government. No equity, no interest. What are they going to say? Either it's a scam or I'm already doing it with some big renowned accounting firm. And so dejected, we said, okay, let's start going to these people's events. Okay, we started going to these people's events and construction, oil and gas, manufacturing. We looked like two young guys who threw on a suit jacket on top of a hoodie. And they, they seemed like the cigars club, right? We couldn't relate. So now dejected, super dejected, we start hitting up the startup events. We started looking at what other events are there. And when we went to the startup events, man, it felt like our tribe. 
instant connection. We're doing this call, right? We, the second podcast we're doing together, yeah. having this great camaraderie. They became our friends. They were living, breathing their companies. We were living, breathing this startup life. We started eating together, partying together, hanging out together. We even participated in hackathons together. So that became our tribe. Now, there's some key lessons here because you, we started this question with, if you have no network, where do you start? So this is where we were. We had no network. Where do we start? Number one, you got to figure out what your aspiration is and what do you want to get to, right? What is your goal? And en route to getting to your goal, who is the ideal customer profile or ideal community profile or ideal, ideal audience profile that will help you get there? Who are you going to create or build a network of that will help you get there? You want to get in movies, you want to be surround yourself with movie stars. You want to be a startup rock star, you got to surround yourself by startups. That's the kind of thing, right? And so let's say you don't know at all. So where do you start? Let's say you have an idea for a product. You don't even know who to sell. You don't even know who to create for. This four, these four steps will help you decide how do you even come up with your target market? Number one, do I have a passion for this audience? Oil and gas, manufacturing, I don't think we could create for them, man. It was just didn't resonate, right? Yeah. But the startup community, not only we now built three startups for them, two failed, but we failed with, we did, we did two AI companies. They failed with thousands of users. Just we couldn't get the tech working. This was an AI product in 2013 and 15, way ahead of its times. One was a chatbot and one was an AI sales assistant. Nonetheless, then Boast also selling to the same market. Traction, the community we built to 120,000 subscribers, also to the same market. And this book, From Grassroots to Greatness, which is a bestseller now, also for the same market. The point I'm trying to make is if you don't love your audience and have a passion to help them to create for them, how you, will you build something sustainable? Building a company, and even harder, building a community-led company is a labor of the heart and mind, right? It's hard, right? It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And it's a long freaking slog. If you hate your customers and your audience, you'll never be able to sustainably create. The next thing is start with a small niche that you see growing. When we started Boast in 2012, startup market was really small. Everyone would laugh at us saying, man, these guys are never going to pay you on time. These guys are going to go bankrupt. You guys are not going to build a successful business selling to startups. Fast forward today, that market has exploded, right? It's the fastest growing segment. You got to follow your gut and your instinct because there's great success in picking a contrarian view and actually being right. You just got to follow where the innovation is happening. And as a function of me living in Silicon Valley, I could see a lot of innovation and funding going in startups. Now, the industry, this whole R&D funding market at the time wasn't so prevalent for startups. And we just used that product to sell to startups. And nobody saw that there was a future there. But we knew that all the innovation dollars are being spent by startups as a, as a function of overall company spend. Startups spend the most on R&D and innovation. So keep that in mind. Also, going after a small but growing niche sometimes will help you identify white spaces more than a saturated market. If you're in a saturated market, then you got to find, you, you got to basically offer a 10x solution. It might be hard to find a white space. The third thing, is there a propensity to pay? Will they pay you? That's everything someday. And the last one is, is there ease of access? So passion for the market, small but growing niche, 
ease of access, propensity to pay. Start there. Number two is understand your audience really well. And we chanced into this, right, by luck. But we went there and we got to eat, breathe, drink, sleep with them, hang out with them. We understood not only their problems and goals, we understood their aspirations at what stands in the way. So problems and goals are short-lived. Aspirations are long-term. And as you build a community-led company or any company, if you look at, see, every company that's 100 million in ARR, they have more than one product, right? If you just focus on the customer problem at hand or the goal at hand, you'll just build that one narrow product and keep adding features. The way to build multiple products, we talk about second act in SaaS. The way to make your second act bigger than the first act is to actually follow the aspiration. What is the customer's eventual aspiration? So you can build multiple products for that aspiration. So if you look at Boast, we started with automating R&D funding from the government. These were government programs that were manual and cumbersome, and we would collect their data and automate that process. Then we added lending because the government would take a long time to pay. You got to accumulate a year's worth of R&D work and expenses, then file it with the government, then the government pays you. So that whole process is 14 months. So we raised a $100 million fund to say, hey, why wait for every month you spend in R&D, plug your tech and financials to boast, and we'll give you the money now, and then we'll deal with the government a year later. And then now we've got this interesting data set of R&D data and financial data and banking data, which nobody has. And so our next set of products are around R&D analytics, like helping you innovate faster, who you should hire, what projects you should invest in. Again, all towards the customer's aspiration, right? Why do they want money to innovate faster? Why do they want to innovate faster to create impact, to accelerate innovation? And so it was all along that lines. So understanding the customer's aspiration is important in addition to their problems and goals. Then you understand their circle of influence. Who do they follow? Meaning who are the influencers in the space? This gives you a list of people. Say if you host events, you can invite them as speakers. If you host podcasts, you can invite them as guests. Who do they frequent? Meaning what platforms are they prevalent on? Are they on LinkedIn? Are they on WhatsApp? Wherever they are so you can distribute content there. What blogs, magazines they read? Are they read TechCrunch? So if you see now at our events, every year we have Frederick from TechCrunch come. Every single year. I don't moderate any of the sessions. I don't need to. I let Frederick moderate three, four sessions. I let John from Forbes moderate three or four sessions because those are people that our audience follows and reads their content, right? And so when Frederick from TechCrunch is interviewing like Jyoti Bansal of AppDirect, it's, oh, wow, this is like a, this is like reading a TechCrunch article. Like they vibe with it, right? And then the last one is, what do they pay for? What do they fund? What other tools or services do they pay for? This gives you a list of sponsors or even partners. Now, once you have this understanding of your customers and their circle of influence, which is very key because you have the customer in the center, you have the circle of influence, then you leverage the circle of influence to create content for them. And so now everywhere they look, they, they surround they themselves you. with you. They see you, right? And you can repurpose one form of content multiple times. But when you start there, start one, start really small, right? Say if you're doing a podcast, you want to build a network, great way. Pick a small niche that nobody is talking about or it's a white space and build a list of people, scrape their email addresses. You can use hunter.io or you can now use apollo.io and you can find people's email addresses and it is emailing. Pratik, you won't believe, man, almost 95% of the people who've come to our traction events, our podcasts, 
And this is Atlassian's president to Zoho CEO, to Twilio CEO, to Jason Fried of Basecamp, to Jason Lemkin. I have cold emailed. I do this over and over again. The compound interest on cold emailing people to build relationships over 10 years is a massive network of 120,000 people. Jason Lemkin wrote the forward on my book. You know how I met Jason Lemkin? I was hosting an event. I cold emailed him and cold emailed him to come and moderate a session. I was a big fan. Okay. Then what I did was I cold emailed a whole bunch of other unicorn CEOs. And I know Jason liked interviewing founders. I convinced Ryan Smith of Qualtrics, which had a big exit at the time, I think in 2015, to come speak. And I pitched him on the idea that Jason Lemkin will interview him. And he was like, yes, I want Jason Lemkin to interview me. And he's like, if you can get Jason Lemkin to interview me, I'm in. And I told Jason Lemkin, then I followed up was, hey, uh, my first interview, first email to Jason Lemkin was something like, hey, I'd love to invite you to come to speak at the event. He didn't respond. Next one was, hey, Jason, all these other people are interested in speaking. Would you be interested? The next one was, hey, Ryan Smith asked if you would be open to moderating. And he said, yes. So it took three or four tries. Now, what happened after that was he was so impressed when he came to that event because he saw Rippling's founder there. This is at the time when he was doing Zenefits. He saw Eventbrite CEO, you name it, like that chief growth officer at LinkedIn. He's like, how did you get all these people to come to your event? And I said, I cold emailed them all. Then everyone in the speaker room was saying, Lloyd, just cold email us. Till today, even at the last Traction Conference last year, everyone, when they came to the speaker dinner, they're like, how do you know Lloyd? They're like, he cold emailed us. Even I got on your podcast from cold yeah. email. Cold I was email. just going to say that you cold emailed me. I cold emailed you, you know, and we, then you in, invited me second time around. Yeah. And we've had, we spoke to two times and we've built an amazing rapport together. And that's a perfect example of how you can continue to build your network. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying, man. Most people don't ask. Why don't you just ask? It is the easiest thing to do. Now, when you ask though, don't ask like, you're taking. Like, oh, I want to pick your brain. No. Have a very specific ask. Thank them for something that they've done. Compliment them and try to give them a little before you ask, right? Yep. Like, I was giving Jason Lemkin now the opportunity to interview this founder who had just exited and who eventually the following year went on to come and speak at Saster. And so Jason got to build a relationship with him. I gave him something unique. So try to give somebody something unique. I have this rule in networking. When you meet somebody, try to walk away with something you can connect them with. Whether it's a plumber or a restaurant or a lawyer or a banker or whatever it is, walk away with something. And then you know what? Make that connection instantly. Give them. You do that two or three times, what you develop is the feeling of reciprocity. Now they have to give you. I'll give you, I'll give you another example. A great friend of mine, Leah Theron. She has this podcast, Product T. And she asked me to make a couple of intros for her and I got really busy with the book. But nonetheless, I reached out and then I didn't follow up. But then she went and made like four or five intros for me to podcasters. And those folks responded very immediately and they got me on their podcast. That ate me alive so much that this Sunday I had a window. I reached out to six people. Like I reached out to Jason Fried of Basecamp. I reached out to Desk Trainer. I reached out to uh, Farhan, the VP of Engine at Shopify, and all these unicorn execs. And I'm like, will you do this for Leia's show? And then I had an automatic follow-up. And four of those five people agreed to be on it. Because there's a feeling of reciprocity, man. Because yeah. it was eating me alive that without me asking her, she made three or four intros. 
And she asked me for two intros and I couldn't come through. So I think try to give because when you give and give, and you don't have to give in a big way, but you can research somebody and figure out what they're looking for and try to make that connection. A lot of emails I get, man, Pratik, is about what can you do for me? Can I get on a one-on-one call with you? I read your book or I read your post. Can you spend some time with me? I'm like, bro, I've got 120,000 subscribers. How can I spend time with so many people, right? Message me a thoughtful question and I'll try to answer it async. Don't try to get on the phone with me. Make my life easy by asking me very specific. I want to pick your brain. No, do something for somebody. And the best way to do that is by starting to build a community because everyone wants to share their message. And you telling them that I'll interview on a podcast, one, through that podcast, you can ask them the questions that are burning you. So it's like free advisory. Two, you'll tell them that I'll amplify this. Now, don't just say I'm going to amplify it. Go on and do it. Just throwing a podcast is not enough. Now, post that podcast everywhere and reach out to people manually. Again, cold email people to say, I did this podcast. Here's the summary. Give it a listen. Drive traffic to it, right? And so when you start doing that for your audience, you start to build a network and compound interest on doing that for years is huge. I'll give you an example. When we started hitting these startup events and spending time with them, we found two white spaces in 2012. One, all the startup events happening at the time were high-level CEO platitudes. Some CEO from some multi-billion dollar company or multi-hundred million dollar company coming and sharing an inspirational talk. It's not tactical, right? If I'm a founder who's at zero or one trying to get to one or five, I don't need inspiration. I already quit my job to start this company. I need tactics. Nobody was talking tactics. And the number two thing was the local media where we started the company in Calgary, Canada, they weren't covering startups. So what did we do? I reached out to the local newspaper, which is Post Media. It was the largest newspaper in the country at the time. And I said, will you cover startups? I'm happy to write for free. And they said, ah, it's not a priority. So what I did was I didn't stop there. I had cold emailed the editor. He said no. I reached out to another friend who knew Rob Lewis, who, who used to write Tech Vibes at the time. And I'm like, hey, can I guest post for you? You're not covering Calgary stories. I'll cover some Calgary stories. Now, here's the thing. Here's another lesson. I was a founder with no, I was a new founder. My only prior experience was doing sales and marketing at startups, not being a founder. So I couldn't talk about my founder journey. So if you can't lead people because you have a higher authority on a topic than them, then what do you do? You curate, right? You can curate. You can invite people who are the higher authority and interview them and curate their knowledge. You either lead or you curate. And if you can't lead or curate, then you can report on current trends, news, whatever. And so I covered a few founders in the local startup scene and I sent it to Tech Vibes. They posted it. I shared it with those founders because they hadn't been covered before. They shared the hell out of it. At the time, LinkedIn wasn't huge for distribution, content distribution. Most of the content was on blogs like Neil Patel and Jason Fried and Lemkin and whatnot. And Insta, TikTok for business wasn't, TikTok wasn't there. Insta wasn't a thing for business really, right? Or it wasn't a thing at all. And they started retweeting the hell out of it. Then I used that article and I followed up with the editor. I'm like, hey, editor of Post Media, here's an article I wrote on a regional blog. Look at how many shares and retweets he had. It, it has. This is an audience that is relevant to you. It's a young audience that is turning away from traditional newspapers and tuning into blogs. I can bring that audience back to you. He responded saying, you're right. I'm impressed. I'll give you a blog post. 
Now, again, don't ask for permission, beg for forgiveness. Now, I had no startup experience and I couldn't talk about like SEO and doing startups like a Neil Patel or a Jason Fried. So I said, what do I call this blog? It was one blog post. I kid you not, man, I called it Startup of the Week. <laughs> I wasn't sure he was going to give me additional blog posts or not. It was one mm -hmm. blog post. And I covered a founder that had just raised $3 million. And he was having a hard time, I think, even getting on TechCrunch. Now on the local newspaper, Post Media, Calgary Herald, Startup of the Week is this company, Ethor. And he shares the hell out of it. It goes even more like viral than the previous one. Everyone is sharing it in the local community, friends, family, because it creates this vibe that the local newspaper is creating like a mini award, Startup of the Week, meaning you're the most valuable, most exciting startup of the week to watch. I kid you not, within a day or two, I started getting like missed calls from the editor. I call, I'm like, oh man, he's going to lose it. Why did I call it Startup of the Week? But he was happy. When I talked to him, he's, Lloyd, if you commit to writing this every week, I will give you a print column. That's amazing. So think about this. If I hadn't reached out to him and hadn't asked, this wouldn't have happened, right? So now that blog turned into print column, but it did four things. Number one, we were a new company. It would take years to get any SEO. We got a backlink from the highest domain authority website in the whole country, the newspaper, right? Every week. So our SEO started, our, our domain authority SEO started jumping for an anchor texted keyword. <laughs> That's your R&D. That's amazing. Funding from Boast backlink, right? Number two, instant social proof. Even in 2023, a print column has more weight than anything else. Definitely. So, so these guys are good guys endorsed by the newspaper. Number three, it would create this like weird dynamic where every Monday at 7 or 8 a.m. or 6 a.m. something, the founder would go to the newsstand and buy a bunch of physical copies and share it with family and they would take pictures and it would get shared. Number four, I put a, I put a link in there saying, if you want to be featured, apply to this Wufu form. Now that form started filling, gave me some of the early database. Didn't stop there. That was the online activity. Now, how do I turn that audience that is building online into a community? We started hosting meetups. Remember I said all the events at the time were organized by event organizers and they were high-level CEO platitudes. So I started emailing these people and saying, hey, Pratik, I'm inviting Jason. He's going to talk about his journey getting the first 100 customers and raising their first uh, half a million seed round. They're going to dive steps A to Z, right? That's tactics. We only have 10 spots. It's at our co-working space and there's going to be free pizza. All tell showed up. Now, if I stopped at one startup of the week and one pizza night, it would be game over. We never stopped. I wrote, didn't get paid, but for almost three years, I wrote that startup of the week. And the day I stopped writing it because I got busy with the business, that column also stopped. But nonetheless, for almost three years, I wrote it. And these events, we kept doing it and doing it. And one day, 200 people showed up to the co-working space and the guys at the co-working space are like, you've hijacked all the aisles. This is like not a conference here. What are you doing? You can't do this anymore. That eventually became validation for us to do an actual conference and it turned into the Traction Conf and we've done it in SF. We've done it in, Van in Vancouver many years, in Calgary or rather in Banff. And it's now turned into a podcast network or rather a huge podcast property, YouTube channel and a big email subscriber base, right? That is so amazing and so inspiring. But what I'm telling you is very simple here, Pratik. For anyone looking to build a network or a community rather, I'd say community because network sounds sounds very transactional. A yeah. community sounds very personal, like it's bonding. It's a community. 
as I was writing this book, I talked to almost a thousand people or so, community members, community leaders, entrepreneurs. I looked at hundreds of companies that started with nothing and became long-term enduring brands. And I rewatched all our content from our traction community. And it's funny, our community is called traction. It's not called the boast community. It's a community of practice. It's not a community around our product because we had no product. We were forced to build this community that eventually end up becoming our customers because this community gave us the social proof, right? And that community is called Traction because it was tied to the aspiration of what our ideal customer profile wants. They want traction. They want to create impact. They want to build successful companies. But nonetheless, so, so it became a very disarming thing when we started the community. Imagine we started a community around a product and we have no product, no customers. People are like, this is a timeshare presentation. This is not a community, <laughs> right? <laughs> so as I was talking to these people, I found something very interesting. Every obscure idea that eventually became a global enduring phenomena from Christianity to CrossFit had four specific stages. That's, that's a bold statement here, right? From Christ to CrossFit, every obscure idea that became an enduring global phenomena went through the exact same four stages. People listen to you, you have an audience. How do you get people to listen to you? Understand your ideal customer profile, figure out their aspirations, their goals. And then pick a channel and start creating content for them. How do you pick a channel? You figure out where do they hang out, right? Where do they frequent? So if LinkedIn is where your customers hang out, start creating content there. Now, when you bring that audience together to interact with one another, it becomes a community. So if you look at it, at the time, LinkedIn for us was not huge. We started creating content on the local newspaper, startup of the week, right? And then we started bringing these people together to interact with one another and it started becoming a community. Now, when your community comes together to create impact towards a greater purpose, far greater than your product or profits, it becomes a movement. And when your movement has undying faith in its purpose through sustained rituals over time, it becomes a cult or a religion. Now, boast is that community. But in my book, I talk about several companies that became movements and became cult-like brands like your Harley Davidson or your CrossFit. But what I'm saying is if we, kept, if we keep going on this journey for the next 10, 15 more years, no doubt it'll eventually get there, right? But consistency is key. Another example is Atlassian. So last year, Atlassian's community self-organized 5,000 events. Wow. If Atlassian had to organize 5,000 events, they would have to have a massive team. So this tells you that Atlassian has 5,000 super fans who on average engaged 100 people. And Atlassian, without any involvement of theirs, other than enabling and showing love and giving some pizza money to these people, were able to engage half a million people last year. That didn't take overnight. It took Atlassian 20 years to get there. But Atlassian is in the software space. It's a cult-like brand. And so that's the important thing to keep in mind is don't get dejected. Even Mr. Beast, if you look at his videos or Gary Vaynerchuk's videos from 15 years ago, Mr. Beast's videos from seven, eight years ago, they're all bad. They're awful. But you know what thing is common? They never stop. The most successful people never stop. If I stopped at like 10% events and I like got dejected or at the fifth startup of the week saying, ah, this is too hard, we wouldn't have gotten here, right? And then when you create, you just have to seed it. Just because you do an event, what happens is we create, 
but we fail to communicate that creation and we fail to do it with consistency. So here's how it happens. We're all creators and so we default to creating, but we don't want to communicate what we created and we get dejected because nobody consumes it because we haven't communicated it. And then we stop being consistent. This is exactly what happens, right? We'll do an event and we'll spend all this production value on event. Events are also products. I view everything as a product. Like you build a startup and you build the software, you raise seed money, and then you get no customers for it. Start by researching the customer and figure out what would be a great experience for them, then create the experience, right? But you'll spend all this time with logistics and food and everything and then try to sell tickets and then and be worried that nobody will show up. And then what do you do for selling tickets? You'll run ads or you'll run massive email blasts. No, identify who the audience is and then personally reach out to them. Reach right. out to people. Keep growing that audience and keep following up. Yeah. Keep doing it over and over and over again and keep doing it and more people will come. Man, I kid you not, Pratik. If I didn't have cold email, I would be freaking broke today. I wouldn't be sitting in Dubai. And that's the reality of everything. So you know the story of success behind Lloyd Lobo, cold emails. Cold email. <laughs> Let's quickly switch gears. I know you. we are running out of time. Amidst all of this, there is a difficult phase also, right? You. You went through a health scare. You ended up being severely depressed as you were exiting your company. A lot of people are hesitant to talk about mental health. And uh, I've been starting to talk more publicly about mental health as well. When you were going through this, how did you recognize the problem and what did you do to overcome this challenge? You know, the hard thing is all our life, we chase success looking for happiness. And success is society's definition of success. What is that? Money, fame, power. It's all fleeting. The only thing that remains is your health, is your relationships, it's your family. And Pratik, what's, what's really interesting is we're proactive on everything except our health and our relationships. You know that? You notice that? And I was in that boat. All my life, I chased success looking for happiness because growing up as this rebellious kid, everyone from my relatives to my mother-in-law, she didn't want me to get married to my wife. My wife got into medical school in second year of undergrad without MCATs. Everyone said this guy will amount to nothing. And so you run on this chase, right? And especially us coming from Indian backgrounds, it's even more stronger in like Asian families that you got to be a doctor or an engineer or you need to do this definition of success. And I chased and chased and chased and I didn't spend as much time with my family. I got two kids, now three. I neglected the hell out of them. As a luck, during COVID, we hosted a community event when there was a window opening and the investors who bought half the company and liquidated us, we sold 52% of the company to a growth equity fund. And that's a conversation for a whole nother day, probably, on how to optimize for the best founder outcome. And I was excited, man. I was ecstatic, but I got so busy in the due diligence and all of this stuff. And my wife would always say, stop to smell the roses. And I would <laughs> say, listen, I'm really busy. I don't have time for this. When the deal goes through, we'll take everybody to Bora. She said, nobody cares about your Bora. You think kids are going to remember Bora? They care about spending time with you, phones down. The kids will remember the time you didn't spend with them versus the two-week vacation. Like I say, compound interest and consistency leads to overnight success. 
compound interest on not spending time with your kids or having the phone always like this when you're eating with them leads to disengaged kids or destroyed relationships. Now, luckily, they were really young at the time when I went through all of this. My, my children are now today, they're nine, five, and two. But at that time when I was running, a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. And the due diligence process happened. And for the longest time, I think when I married my wife, I said to her, I will retire at 40 as a joke. And to me, retirement doesn't mean do nothing. It means freedom to do what you want, when you want, where you want, with whom you want. And I kid you not, man, the week of the 40th, my 40th birthday, the wire hit my bank. Everyone had goosebumps. Wow, that's Man amazing. <laughs> manifestation. Yeah. But nonetheless, I booked everyone to Bora. This is what happened two days before the Bora trip. I get Omicron. I had bilateral COVID pneumonia. I'm hospitalized. I'm on oxygen. My wife being a doctor at Stanford where they admitted me wasn't allowed in the room. I had people walking into the room with spacesuits. They set up a 24-7 Zoom. And now all I'm hearing on Zoom is people crying, pumping all these steroids in my body. And I'm feeling like lost and delirious. And I'm thinking to myself, what have I done? It's not the money in my bank. It's the people around my tombstone that will matter. It's not the yeah. destination or the journey. It's the companions that matter the most. You could be on a crappy journey on the way to hell, but great companions make it memorable and you feel strong. That's why they say our misery loves company. Going through that Gulf War, it never felt like misery. You had companions. You had that yeah. spirit. And I felt lost and then came back and the company had gone from 35 people. We were growing to over 100 people. We started to hire all these big company execs. I'm a pirate, zero to one person. I wasn't getting along with them. Late summer, my daughter comes to me and she says, Dad, you've gotten worse. You promised us from the hospital that now you'd spend more time with us. Your biggest regret if you die would be you didn't spend enough time with us. And I tell her, I'm really sorry. Things have gotten really busy. We have so many other people. I'm trying to figure out my own role in the company. I've gone from being a founder to now I don't know what I'm doing here anymore yeah. with all these people. And we got to make all these employees that joined us whole because they put their faith in us. And she tells me, why don't you go and work for a founder who thinks like that, someone who thinks like that, so I can have my dad back. You see, what I promised coming out of the hospital was I'll change, try to change for one or two months, but old habits die really hard. Yeah. Then that happened. Two days, I grieved about it. Two weeks later, I end up at a company offsite with my co-founder in Austin. My phone is always down in business meetings. Mysteriously, it's not down in family meetings at the time. And I pick up the phone several hours later and there's 20 missed calls, okay? My wife's best friend calls me and she's like, you asshole, you've done this for the third time now. I'm like, what happened? Your wife is in freaking labor in the hospital delivering your third kid and there's no sign of you. Like, where are you? Now I have to take the next flight and it's not until next morning. I make it back to San Francisco and literally within an hour and a half or less than two hours, between an hour or two hours, my son was born. So it was a close call, right? Now I go into a board meeting all stressed out. Obviously, I'm not getting along with the new execs because we hired CTO, CMO, CFO from like multi-billion dollar company kind of thing. And I'm like, listen, you got to fire these people. None of them are going to work out. And they're like, whoa, calm down. You've had a stressful year. Why don't you take a paternity leave and come back and we'll figure out the right uh, place for you. Now, I didn't take that in the right way. I went home that day and I hugged my wife and I literally cried for 10 minutes. And I said, listen, I'm really sorry for all the times you needed me. And I put the company first. Today, the company doesn't need me. And you're the only person here. 
Now, this is what most sane people would do who are not entrepreneurs. They had come into money that they had never seen before. I went from being like piss poor all my life to being a multimillionaire. They would go to Bali or Goa or somewhere and just chill for a little bit. But no, I became depressed because I spent the last 10 years building my identity around this company. I had no other social. All my friends were from the startup community. But the community was my second family and in many ways, first family. I knew nothing outside of that. All my friends, my entire circle was all community members. And so my identity was this company. And suddenly I felt it was taken away. I face planted. The money didn't matter, right? I felt I lost my tribe. And I started running and running from place to place. Anyone would call me. I'd just go to their event like Paris and Costa Rica and you name it, I went all over the world, just going to random places to meet with friends, right? I'd fly some friends in because I'd come into some money. And things came to a head when I was in Romania now, speaking at a tech conference. And we're now at the speaker retreat after the conference. We're three and a half hours from Bucharest in some wilderness. At two in the morning, everyone's sitting by the pool. I'm frantically dialing for an Uber. And I'm asking the hotel person, can you send a car? They're like, no, not here. You're not going to get a car at this hour. And they're all laughing at me. You're not going to get a car. So I leave the Uber searching on and it's searching. 20 minutes go by and then suddenly the sound comes. And then the Uber is coming. I'm waiting for it to approach. It finally gets there. And I tell the Uber, can you wait a couple of minutes? I go pack my bags. I book a flight to Costa Rica. And I'm like, let's go. And I tell them, guys, I'm leaving to Costa Rica. I had a few friends call me and they're in Costa Rica. So I need to go. I need to make that trip. And we drive now three and a half hours to make like the 7.30 or 8 a.m. flight. That's how crazy I became. And then when my wife saw me when I came back and she's like, Lloyd, you've gotten out of shape, overweight, you're like miserable, you're insufferable, you're drinking. What's wrong with you? If something happens to you, you will not get a third chance. COVID survival was a second chance. And what happens if something happens to you? Your kids will be left holding the bag. And then I came to my senses and I turned my life around. Again, how? I didn't do it solo. I surrounded myself with companions who were fit. I joined the Peloton community. That community brought me to sanity. And so as I was looking back, I reflected, Pratik, that all my life I had no money, but I was happy because there was the community. Yeah. And the one time I came into money, I felt I lost my tribe, my community, and I got depressed. And that's the reason why I decided to write the book on community is because honestly, loneliness is the number one killer in America. There is this concept of blue zones, which are five places around the world where people live to be 100. Functionally is important because yeah. longevity without functionality means nothing. Nothing. Yep. And they have nine traits. Four or five of them are to do with communal activity, social activity. And so your companions matter the most. And one of the key things I did was started surrounding myself with positive people who are fit. I started being thankful. My wife's words, the glass is half full is what I started the conversation with. Thank something good that happened the day before. And then exercise first thing in the morning. Ex exercise releases endorphins in your brains that calms the feeling of stress. And I love doing it first thing in the morning because there is uh, the study by Naperville High School where they introduced a concept of zero hour PE. Before you start a single class or read a single book or open a single piece of paper, you would go and work out. Lift weights, run, whatever it is. Those kids turn out to be some of the smartest kids in the world, some of the most athletic kids in the world. That's amazing. 
there's no brain function that exercise doesn't improve. And so now I don't start my day without working out. Wake up, bang out 50 push-ups to Eye of the Tiger, which is the first <laughs> song I listened to when I hopped on the Peloton. And be thankful for something good that happened the day before. And now hit the gym, right? And it becomes a system. And for me, working out is also a social activity. There's so many people around. I can't sit and work out alone at home. I can't. For me, it's a social activity that brings me joy. And I think that is some of the things you can do to improve your mental well-being is one, have this glasses half full mindset. Work out first thing in the morning. Surround yourself with smart people. See a therapist. I, I think it's so underrated. Nobody wants to talk to a therapist. But you know what? Do you want to keep telling publicly that you're crushing it and be crushed from inside and one day be gone? What a disservice, right? To a great life. Clean your diet. Clean your diet. I kid you not, man. There's this processed Western diet is bad for you. Eat protein-rich whole foods. Cut out nonsense dopamine, like infinite scrolling. Anything that addicts you, cut it out, right? But I think start, make small steps. The easiest small step is wake up every day, think about a specific act that brought you joy the day before. Like literally, like tomorrow when I wake up, I'm like, I had a wonderful conversation with Pratik. We <laughs> talked about all these things and we had a great time. And then talk about something else that I went. And then bang out some push-ups hit the gym. I think that should be the cadence of what you do. Drink a lot of water. Surround yourself with smart, positive people. There's too much negative energy out there, man. I stopped watching the news even. It's just all left-wing, right-wing, wokeism, cancel culture, this one, that one. The news happens. Yeah. The compound interest, I, I talked a lot on the consistent theme here is compound interest on consistency. Compound interest on consistency of exposing your brains to negative news and, and negative energy over time will take make you depressed. Yep. I think that is spot on. And on that note, I think, Lloyd, you've shared tremendous amount of knowledge bits here, right from entrepreneurship to startup to building network and community. And how do you, end of the day, be happy, right? So thank you so much for spending time with us. And uh, I think a lot of people are going to find this episode very, very practical and helpful. Thanks again uh, for sharing your story so candidly and so honestly. And I really appreciate that. Sounds good, Pratik. Thank you so much. And that wraps up today's episode. Before we sign off, I would like to thank you for your support and thanks for tuning in. If you love today's episode, then don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and never miss an episode. Be kind, be happy, challenge is the norm. I'll see you folks again for the next one.